0: It wasn't learning about how to have better climate-aligned bonds or more ambitious stakeholder engagement facilitation. It was about understanding what we have forgotten, whom we have harmed in the process, and what it really looks like to live in right relationship with people, with soil, with land, with what we call biodiversity in corporate speak, and which is
1: really life. Welcome to the Intuitively Aligned Podcast, a place for changemakers to cultivate their intuition and foster greater impact in their everyday lives. I am your guide, Sydney Bloom. Hi, friends. I am so excited for our guest today, B. Lorraine Smith, who holds a vision of an economy that works in service of life. She has been working towards this vision with Global Company since 2004 as an advisor, writer, speaker, and corporate mischievous. She is telling as much truth as she can, and she shares her insights in the Material World Substack, and podcast, and is a regular guest and speaker in other provocative venues committed to profound positive change. Lorraine runs ultra-long distances on urban trails, spins, and knits her own original textiles And holds doggedly to the belief that our connectedness and curiosity are our greatest assets. Lorraine, welcome to the episode. Thank you. It's an honor and a real pleasure to be here. Thanks, Sydney. I think it would be great to bring everyone who's with us in on a little bit of where your professional journey has been in the impact that you're creating. And then we will dive into intuition. But your world of work is a space that invites us to see and sense in different ways. So we need to start there.
0: Thank you. So I'll start with the end in mind, my vision. I hold a vision of an economy that works in service of life. And what I mean by that is all economic entities, businesses, industries, any organization meeting our needs, delivering things into the marketplace does so in a way that enables life to thrive. My life, my ability to help others and the wider ecological nest that is our home. And I also mean that in a way that it is the purpose of all economic activity. And I wanna just really underline that purpose piece because it's kind of a buzzword these days in industry and marketing and corporate social responsibility, sustainability, where companies will say, oh yes, we're we're purpose-led, we're a purpose-driven organization. But what that really means, and so I'll underscore this, and then I'll back up a bit into how I do this. We can look at a company like Google, pretty big company, right? It's basically a verb. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And their purpose is something along the lines of making all the world's data accessible to everyone everywhere. That's a really cool purpose. And in some ways they do that, right? You and I could Google things right now if we want and find all kinds of cool data. But the way they make money is by generating advertising revenue. So their purpose is to generate financial revenue through the impacts of advertising uh, the transactional impacts of advertising and it is neutral beyond you know breaking hate speech laws and you know they do have some parameters and constraints but not many so if their business propagates the advertising that sells more of the perfect black handbag or you know short notice trips to costa rica or some other thing, it's irrelevant. The purpose is to generate revenue, most of which comes through advertising. So what they say their purpose is and how they generate revenue is not the same. In my vision, where the economy works in service of life, all revenue generated enables healthier humans within a healthier biosphere. And Mm. that is at all scales across all industries in all regions. And what I've noticed when I share this vision, although less so, I've been really sort of moving through this idea and how it looks and feels for a couple of years now. Initially, when I would share this with folks I know in fairly senior roles in business or kind of hardened business folks, they would laugh. The the initial reaction would be a kind of like, (laughs) okay, but you know, we got to be realistic, right? Like we got to, we got to, we got to keep in line with what's possible. And then they realized, like I watched the little eye flicker of like, oh, yeah, why wouldn't the economy serve life? And what is it serving? And what does that mean? And so for about 20 years, starting in 2003, I kind of wandered into a career in corporate social responsibility, or as it came to be known more, sustainability or ESG, environmental, social and governance Uh, And there's a lot of pieces to that. I can dive in more, but that's things like corporate strategy, community engagement, stakeholder engagement more broadly, uh, reporting and transparency, all kinds of stuff. And I worked for a couple different firms and I worked freelance and I'm kind of aggregating a whole bunch. Happy to unpack more. But to say I worked in different contexts doing that Mm -hmm. work. And I worked across sectors. So I worked with big mining, oil and gas, energy companies in Canada. I ultimately moved to New York, started working with even more uh, international firms, a lot of big food, um, forestry, agriculture, energy. Oh, like I'm picturing like the helicopter tour of the coal mines, working with one of the largest banks in the world. So I got kind of backstage with a lot of industries With a lot of people who my experience was very well intended, trying to have the most positive social and environmental impact they could by setting ambitious goals, working with different stakeholders to learn and figure out how to achieve those goals and how to report on and share information and ever evolving benchmarks and frameworks and standards and rankings and ratings. And the further I got into it, the more senior I got, I held a couple senior management roles in the firms I was working at. I was often the lead on projects with pretty big companies doing executive presentations, getting flown here and there to connect dots and you know push the needle to move the needle. But I, I know I shouldn't
1: giggle when you say move the needle, but it's it's one of those phrases I've heard so many times. Too. Totally. It's right up there with thinking outside of the box.
0: And <laughs> as I began to think outside of the box, I noticed from outside of the box, looking into it, that the needle wasn't moving. And not only was it not moving, we were so busy. I mean, you know, you could say that with lots of careers and businesses and industries and lives, like being busy isn't a particularly unique (laughs) feature. But we were really busy pushing hard to make a positive difference. And when I stood back a few times, I had a few rounds, so a few pivots, a few little acorns Mm -hmm. going, I'm trying to germinate and sprout. And notice what was going on, I would notice that the further and faster and harder we pushed, the less effective things were. The more granular and kind of graphically whiz bang the mapping tool, the less impact it had on those most harmed or those areas most degraded. And there's a real kind of cool factor in sustainability. There's conferences galore. They're sort of like reunions. I I say this, I'm being a little bit critical. And then I'm also talking about people whom I love, whom I think of as very good friends and miss and, you know, look Mm -hmm. forward to seeing. And yet I was becoming increasingly, not even disillusioned, just sort of like, this isn't working. And I found myself saying within client projects, hey, this isn't working. And let me show you why. And I'd be learning and more and more in the latter years of this. So especially when I started to get more actively invited to Brazil and do more Mm -hmm. client work on the ground in Brazil I think that really cracked open a bunch of things for me. It gave me kind of access to more more obvious gaps in what was and wasn't happening. And I don't mean like because poverty is more visible there. I mean because the people I was working with granted me passage into more grounded excellence mm-hmm. in what is possible. And what, what like a big reframe for me was... There's this assumption here, I still hear it. There's this assumption that I was being brought down to Brazil because Brazilians didn't have all the things they need. And they need, like, you know, fancier North American folks like me to come down and help them. And then they'll have the tools and then they can build on the tools. And of course, that was like immediately, obviously bullshit. Mm -hmm. I don't think I went thinking that's what I was doing. I went to do the projects I was hired to do, but I would hear that vibe of, like, yeah, they need some help. Good thing they're getting folks like us. And what I realized very quickly was the learning, the bigger learning was flowing towards me, not from me. And it wasn't learning about how to have better climate aligned bonds or, you know, more ambitious stakeholder engagement facilitation. It was about understanding what we have forgotten, whom we have harmed in the process, and what it really looks like to live in right relationship with people, with soil, with land, with what we call biodiversity and corporate speak, and which is really life. And so over time, those early learnings that were really starting to to ring louder in Brazil started to radiate beyond into all of my work. I started to ask more and more questions, questions. I invited more openness and ambition in the projects I was in. And I started to get two different kinds of feedback that I needed to listen to. One was, Yeah, we totally hear you. Yeah, you're right. You're onto something there. That's really cool. Thanks for raising that. We really appreciate your voice, Lorraine. You're the kind of consultant we need around here. But you know what? We might not be able to build that into this round. So maybe for our next round, we'll start to Mm. do those, those more reasonable things you're doing. And then the other thing I was hearing was, and this was more from outside of my client community, the sustainability system as it's being constructed is part of the problem. It's part of the embedded structural, systemic, cultural mindset norms that say we just need to map it, frame it. We need to show up with the solution and tell these people what to do. And by the way, we need to do that so that we can keep moving towards economic development at all costs. And of course, economic development means economic growth, which basically means hoarding and harming the global majority in the interest of a global minority that is ever shrinking. And, you know, the rest of us in the middle can kind of duke it out the best we can. So them's harsh words, but I started to see it more and more in Mm. living color. And every time I tried to challenge it in openness saying like, prove me wrong here. Something's not feeling quite right. It came to be sort of more true. So, I decided at the end of a five-day run on October 21st, 2021 to put my money where my mouth was uh, mm. and really stop doing work that I felt was contributing to the problem and start doing what I thought needed doing. And I can say more about that if it's helpful, but that since then, I, I unplugged. I no longer take corporate gigs that are part of the kind of sustainability inc and I'm sort of feeling my way forward around, well, what does it look like to contribute to an economy that works in service of life? And what is my role in making that economy exist?
1: Well, first off, thank you so much for sharing the context that brought you to that moment. And one thing that stands out for me is that oftentimes people ask about cultivating their intuition or a more multi-sensory experience. Usually it's because we want to tap more deeply into what is true, tap more deeply into some kind of healing or wholeness of our being. And what I really appreciate about what you've shared just to start is how you've articulated the landing of these realizations through your professional reality, And I know that I relate to that. I think so many people will also relate to that in terms of continuously showing up in a space where you have an understanding of what the objective is, of what the mission is, and yet increasingly becoming aware that there are harms being done that are unarticulated, unseen, maybe, as you were describing, uncomfortable to weave into the immediate activities at hand, even if all parties are nodding and smiling as you're talking Mm -hmm. about it. Mm -hmm. So I really want to honor that and just also make a connection on an energetic level, which is that oftentimes, and people who listen to this podcast know that I talk a lot about intention setting. Mm. Setting intentions is the foundation of my practice. And hearing you describe all of the work that you've done. And I know this is like the most tip of the iceberg. I often set intentions and talk about giving thanks for support in the physical and unseen realms. And I think oftentimes people opening up to their intuition feel like, oh, I really want to delve into the unseen. And to me part of the intuitive or the spiritual or the remembering or diving into the wholeness of the human experience is to be honest with ourselves about what we are seeing in the physical realm mm-hmm. in the material realm and i have to say that your podcast and your sub stack are so eye-opening and there's not a wooey moment, period. We're talking about material reality. Yeah. And so I think this is why I was so excited to connect with you and for us to have this conversation because you are weaving in the material realm deeper truth, deeper authenticity, and reconciliation mm-hmm. with what is to create economies in service of life. And It is earth shattering and it is obvious and Mm -hmm. everything in between. (laughs) And so I really appreciate you even just as a reminder for all of us that we need to deal with our earthly reality. We can't look away because it's too painful or because we don't feel that we have the power. Yeah. You've described the professional context that brought you to 2021. Was there something else going on in your inner world as all of this awareness was landing in your professional practice? Can you describe your own sense of intuition or inner knowing?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love that question because it makes me look at things differently. I wouldn't have thought of it this way, but when you ask it that way, I realize that's exactly what was going on. So. There's a couple of very tangible things, and then a few that are a little bit harder to pin down, but I'll do my best with my command of the English language. The very tangible things are that straddling 2018-2019, I was going through a separation, so I had moved from Toronto, my hometown, to New York. I married a New Yorker, lived there, was working there. That's where I became the director in a firm focusing on sustainability consulting in many ways, my career was sort of blooming in parallel to this personal relationship. And then the marriage ended and I returned to Canada. And for reasons, let's say serendipitous, also Mm -hmm. intuitive, I now realize I came to Montreal where I've never lived, but I'd always said I wanted to be. And I'll skip over the like hilariously serendipitous and beautiful logistics that fell into place to say, that's where I am now. I had had clients here over the years. So I had Some sort of loose professional connections, but other than my grandmother who passed away in 1990, um, whose family was originally from here, but I'd be hard-pressed to find those distant relatives, any of whom might still be alive. So I found myself here starting from scratch in many ways financially, and although professionally I was quite busy as an independent consultant, by this point I'm back to freelancing, I have client work galore. And I'm very busy. I'm at the top of my sustainability consulting game. I'm also at the top of my but something isn't jiving game, this right. this disconnect I was describing. And there was so much turbulence in my life personally and logistically that I kept having the excuse not like, well, now's not the time to rip everything up. I, I just ripped up one big part of my life, like stay the course on work, look after myself, have some financial security, let the money come in in the ways I know how to make it. And yet, you know, oh, and by the way, and make change from within, you'll hear a lot within the sustainability community. And I respect this. And yet for me, it did not prove true. You know, well, you got to meet people where they are. And it's better to stay in the game and make change from within. Mm. So I kind of rode that rationalization for a while, like keep making the money, make the change from within. And then there came a point in 2021 where I could no longer rationalize that. And so I, so that was a, that was the inner stuff that was going on. There was a lot of like personal turbulence, pretty, you know, straight up like divorce, changing city, things like that that make for some inner noise. And I was moving through spaces that i had never moved through before that were really speaking loudly to me. So a new resident of Montreal, Montreal, for those who don't know, is in the province of Quebec, so mostly French language. I'm fortunate to speak French, mm-hmm. so I'd be moving through a different language, which already prompts different kind of neural signals and pathways and memories and ideas, and on the St. Lawrence River. And I'm pretty sure anybody listening among your crowd will feel the power of bodies of water and the intelligence and wisdom that comes from just hanging out near water. Mm -hmm. And Montreal Mm -hmm. is not just any water. Montreal is a river island. Why is it a river island? Because it's at the convergence of two rivers, the Ottawa and the St. Lawrence. And what comes with river islands, all kinds of different topography under the surface, which is also called rapids. So Montreal is here because the Lachine Rapids are here. The First Nations and First Peoples who've been here for millennia knew how to traverse those rapids in their own ways and could come and go as they liked. And this was kind of a meeting space. Uh, but the settlers weren't so savvy with waterways. And so they paused here. This became one of the largest major settlements in what we now call Canada because <laughs> the settlers couldn't get any further. They couldn't right. get any further on water until they started to cut canals. And then ultimately, in the middle of the last century, we cut the St. Lawrence Seaway, which opened up huge commercial possibilities. There's so much I could say about the history of the infrastructure around here. But even just exploring that was telling me stories. It was telling me stories about settlement, the mm-hmm. you know first contact with Europeans. It was telling me stories about how we just kind of barged in and took stuff. And, you know, this isn't a new story but it was i was newly living it with my own eyes running and as a distance runner i found myself running more and more distances i had been marathoning when i lived in new york and before i ran my first marathon in 1997 but what was happening in the latter years of my marriage and it continued when i fully left was i was becoming very interested in ultra distances an ultra marathon is anything more than 42.2 kilometers or 26.2 miles And it kind of gets characterized as this extreme sport, but I'd like to re-characterize it right here and now and set the record straight. It's just covering a bigger distance on foot. And that can mean different things to different people. For some, it is an extreme sport and they go really fast over crazy terrain and they've got crews and whatever. And I respect that, that's really neat. That's not what it is for me. For me, it's the ability to keep going a little further and make more eye contact with the world at a human Mm. pace. And that compulsion to kind of move, across spaces to connect things. Where does that bridge go? Wait, what, what What? was there before those great big pillars of this bridge were anchored into these, these rapids? And rapids are unique in terms of what can be alive in there, what can't be alive. They're beautiful, they're turbulent. And so as I moved around through Montreal, in and around, I started covering more and more ground, I am very blessed to have some very good friendships with a few folks from Ganawage and Ghanasatage, two of the closer mm. Mohawk territories. I accepted invitations to spend time in their communities. I went there on foot. I did a long foot journey one long weekend to Ghanasatage. One way wow. was about 72 kilometers the way back. It was a little shorter. I took a shorter route, Sixty. I can't kilometers. even
1: fathom. I'm just interrupting you to yeah. say I can't even fathom. Running that distance and the way in which your being would be metabolizing yeah. the spirit, the people, the landscape of where you are and where you're going to.
0: It's pretty phenomenal. I strongly recommend it. And, you know, most people, unless they've like heard me rambling on on a podcast, have no idea that I did this because I don't go on about it on social media. I'm not taking selfies and going, I'm at kilometer 61.
1: Some Mm -hmm. people
0: close to me or my running community or others will be aware, and they're also doing really cool things. So this isn't about like a stunt run or a fundraiser or getting a different t-shirt. I was literally trying to understand the world around me.
1: This is the answer to the question, how did you start to tap into your inner knowing?
0: Yeah, exactly. And so I want to bring that in parallel to what was going on with industry, because the, like, thank you very much for your comment that this is reflective of the material world. Like it's very grounded in what's actually happening. And I want to get really clear on that because I'm going to say some things that might be uncomfortable or seem like I'm some kind of radical right winger, climate denier, <laughs> etc. I'm not,
1: but I shouldn't I, be giggling before I know yeah. what you're going to say,
0: <laughs> but I'm going to share some of what I noticed wasn't working in business. And then how does it, what does that have to do with running by the river? So for example, a lot of the work I was paid to do before I pulled the plug was, it gets called a materiality assessment, which I find very ironic. It's like the cosmos is kind of giggling and going, let's give it a name that sounds like it's materially relevant, but it's actually bullshit. So a materiality assessment is what a company, usually a large publicly traded company, will pay a group of consultants to do. They'll pay anywhere from $25,000 to $250,000 U.S. dollars. These are not small projects. And they will pay us to run around and do a bunch of research to understand what are this company's most material issues. Community engagement, climate change, conflict minerals, nutrition, access to healthcare. It could be a whole bunch of things depending on the sector. It's going to be different for a mining company than for a food company. And how do we figure out what those issues are? Well, we look at the company, we analyze a bunch of stuff about it. They give us access to a bunch of things. I always look at their investor earnings calls and what are they saying to investors Most materiality analyzers don't do that. They're always like, oh, that's a very innovative approach, Lorraine. And it's like, well, don't you want to know what your executives are saying to your investors? But anyways, uh, we also would look at what stakeholders say about them. So we would typically interview stakeholders. That would be external and internal. We would work with the company to pick which stakeholders we're going to talk to. We're obviously mostly going to talk to stakeholders. In fact, only going to talk to stakeholders who will talk to us about the company. Mm -hmm. So that's already a pretty select group. We might also seek out experts, you know, if it's a food company, we'll seek experts in nutrition. If it's a mining company, we'll seek experts in conflict minerals, et cetera. And then we'll pull it all together into a beautiful slide deck that says, hey, executives and sustainability strategy team, these are your most material issues. Here's some context on the issues. Here's what they have to do with you. And now that you know your most material issues, these are the things you need to report most publicly about. And that gets into ESG, environmental, social, and governance reporting, which Mm -hmm. is a big cottage industry. And in principle, this is what you should use to develop your strategies, to set your goals. So I'm going to nerd out for a second here and just help you follow the money. Because in principle, there's nothing wrong with figuring out what your issues are and getting strategic about how you solve them and getting public about what's going on. That sounds like a really good idea. It comes from what I would say is a lot of really good ideas. The problem is, first of all, companies refresh these materiality analyses every usually every two years. And there's not a lot of new, like maybe the company has gone through a merger acquisition, so they have to like adjust so that it's accurate to their corporate structure. But most alarmingly, I saw over and over, and I was involved in dozens of materiality analyses, either as a paid consultant or as a stakeholder being interviewed, so I saw this backstage numerous times and got paid (laughs) to participate in it. I never once saw meaningful change on any of the issues, so I saw better disclosure. To use a more grounded, like, everyday analogy, it would be like doing your housekeeping Where you have somebody come through going, Oh, yeah, like your floors are kind of gross and you're having some issues keeping up with dishes and you've got several different pest infestations. Your host smells kind of funny. And most people, when you have them over, they don't sleep very well here. And you're like, Oh, okay, thanks. That's really, really, really helpful. Okay, can you come back in a couple of years and let me know if anything's changed? You come back in a couple of years and it's like the same stuff. You're just not dealing with the real problems. And the real problems are because you are not structured to deal with the real problems. Mm -hmm. Why is human rights one of your issues on your materiality? assessment because you're a global mining company and your job is to rip holes in the ground, extract the minerals and sell them to the highest bidder. And there's some people in your way and there are some ecosystems in your way. And so you have options for what you do around that. Ideally, you don't break any laws. Mostly companies don't break laws. It's amazing what the laws are there to protect or not, but human rights becomes this topic, Mm -hmm. right? It doesn't really center the humans and what those humans were doing before the mining company came along and offered jobs so-called. So, and, and by the way, I am very aware that we are right now, you and I enjoying the mining companies. We are talking devices that, right. So, so I'm not naive to that. I'm not anti-corporate. I'm not saying take down the man. I am saying if you're going to pay consultants a quarter of a million dollars to talk about your material issues and not actually get at the core of why those are issues, which is because your business model profits, from those issues persisting, then we're not really winning here. And let's take climate because it's a it's one that's kind of a hot button. People want to see companies getting more ambitious on climate. And so they're pushing for things like we hear a lot about these net zero targets. And what that's supposed to mean is that the company is responsible for net zero emissions. So they may emit some CO2, but then they may offset. And so ultimately, it nets out to zero. That kind of sounds good in principle, although there's a lot of reasons to dig a little deeper into like why are we so hyper-focused on CO2 and missing the wider interconnectedness of how our climate and our wider biosphere works. But let's let's honor the science and the, the logic of at least paying attention to it, among other things. When you follow net zero goals, I'm going to pick one just because it's easy. There's a really large company called JBS, a global meat company, and they And actually, this will circle us back into intuition, but I want to just give people some hard facts so they know what we're dealing with here. JBS, largest meat company, largest protein producer in the world, headquartered in Brazil. Very serendipitous how I came to be doing a free open source assessment on this company, applying my knowledge of materiality, but now in unplugged mode to take a closer look at them.
1: Is what you're saying, we're not going to get in trouble with them for having this conversation? Ah, great question.
0: Well, we sure shouldn't because everything I'm about to tell you is 100% public, public. based on data they I assume their legal counsel signed off on cuz it's on their websites and all the rest of it. And if so this it's this is public being,
1: information.
0: Yep, yeah, 100%. Yeah, and, oh, there's so many things I want to explain, but I'll stay I'll stay focused on this. And by the way, if anyone from JBS or other places are listening and and the facts have since changed, it'd be really fun to update this and be like, "Oh, this just in, things have gotten better, they've changed." Like I'd love totally. to have that conversation. But everything I'm telling you is based on my open source, footnoted, linked to their signed off public communications Beautiful. and happy to include notes on that so anybody can follow the trail. And so they have a net zero, a net zero climate goal. I think it's net zero by 2040. And there's lots of different ways they're going to achieve that. And they have lots of information. And I, by the way, I think it's totally cool to have a really ambitious goal that you don't know how you're going to achieve. I think that's actually healthy because there's a Mm -hmm. lot of unknowns. And then I also get they need to say as much as they can with their strategy is how they'll do it one of the pieces of their net zero puzzle is sustainability bonds. So issuing the debt instrument we call a bond and structuring it such that the proceeds of the bond are used in ways that are considered sustainable or climate aligned. And there's a bunch of frameworks and ways you can do that. And there's third parties who will assess the the structure of the bond and the way in which the proceeds are meant to be used and say, yes, we've put our third party lens on and we believe this is a climate aligned bond or a sustainable bond. And they have different frameworks and you can read all about it. It's crazy, the intensity and to some degrees, the convolutedness of these so-called
1: climate aligned bonds. It's like so, the economy of the climate bonds. In exactly.
0: So, A lot of people just kind of stop there. They're like, oh, like they may not like JBS because they're a meat company or they may not like them for other reasons. But, you know, okay, so they're issuing this bond and it's been signed off by the third party. So box checked. And a lot of people see with many other companies who are darlings of the sustainability industry that they're doing bonds and they get all kinds of points for doing this. But frankly, it's the same system, same reviewers and same kind of use of proceeds or Mm -hmm. same bucket of use of proceeds. So I'm that pesky person at the front of the class going, excuse me, I have a question. (laughs) And I go, I just want to take a closer look. What does it mean that the proceeds of the bond are used in a way that's going to contribute to your net zero goal? Because so far it sounds good, but like, what are you saying
1: Yes. What are we talking about specifically?
0: Right. So I followed the money as best I could based on the publicly available disclosures. And some of that money, not all because you can't see it all, but some examples that they give in their net zero reporting shows, for example, how they're increasing the capacity at their biofuels plant in a part of Brazil. And I'm sorry, I forget the town where it is, but it's one of their facilities that produces biofuels. Well, these biofuels are made, and they disclose this, made from oil from the soybean. And so they're increasing the amount of oil they make by using commodity grown, conventionally grown monocrop soy. Mm. And then they're making a biofuel that checks the EU, the European Union's green energy box. So everybody's scratching everybody's back here. This is, yep, we're going to make more of this fuel that aligns with your so-called fossil free net zero, save the world, climate aligned, Greta cheering goals. Mm. But actually, what changed? More. Soybeans were grown, a commodity, conventional, soil destroying, land destroying, life destroying crop that we do not need more of. That is how your net zero goals are going to be reached. There's other ways too, but that's a big one. And I just look at that and I ask the migratory birds who fly over, I ask the St. Lawrence River, I ask my own heart and mind does that feel like it's serving life? I do get that it's serving a net zero target. And I do get that there's net zero targets. They're branded. The um, Science Based Targets Initiative, the SPTI, it is TM, right? Right. And I get that it's coming from a place that says, look, there's lots of details and nuance here, but what we have to do is just dramatically reduce emissions. And I'm going to actually set that statement aside possibly true, possibly not true, possibly mosaics into multitudes of interconnected, complex, sometimes true, sometimes not true. And I'm going to say over here in the money that I could follow, separate Mm -hmm. from that platitude around emissions reductions, I see a company increasing its ability to process the oil of a crop that is causing harm to place and people. And investors saying, we need more of that. Because that is where the money is going.
1: Because we love the
0: sustainability bonds. We love the sustainability bonds because they're checking the ESG boxes, even the SDGs. That's Sustainable Development Goals. That's a framework that was sort of ratified by the UN and 196 countries. It's 17 goals, 169 indicators. I've publicly spoken and written in opposition to the SDGs, which doesn't make me the most popular girl in sustainability parties. But I stand behind my words, and I can. Well, and you're
1: established enough that people know your experience and your credibility. And I mean, whether people like it or not, fair um, enough. you're you're not coming for the SDGs out of nowhere. You're coming from an extremely grounded, diverse. Seeing many dimensions of what's actually happening across multiple industries in different countries. Mm, thank you. Yeah, thank you. I'm just saying it how I see it. Yeah, I'm just calling it you. how I see it. Yeah. But I did approach you because I noticed your body of work and I now follow your Substack, and you share all of your research. Mm. It's not you. just thoughts and feelings. You always give the trail. You always give the trail of, of data and regulatory pathways. Thank you. Well, well, let me bring
0: that home a little bit. I really appreciate that. And by the way, when the SDGs hatched in 2015, I was their biggest cheerleader. I created graphics and all kinds of stuff. I was just like, this is so exciting. I absolutely was on board and then watching them be applied and watching them not create life affirming outcomes is what made me pause. So I want to tell you what I'm doing instead yes. <laughs> because, you know, it is easy to kvetch. I kvetch. I notice things that aren't good and I kind of go over and over them, but there's a point where the ruminating for me is what we're all doing over in the sustainability camp. And that's what creates this at best incremental change and even incremental change in the wrong direction. So my Running along riverbanks and doing all kinds of other things, and really just inviting myself to say, "Well, well, what would I do instead?" You know, mm-hmm. like I, I literally asked myself if I could do anything I wanted about this. What would I do? And it, there was a series of things that led to this answer that'll sound short now, which is I would conduct materiality assessments on behalf of life. Mm-hmm. I would I would turn to my client, which is the world around me, the future, the breathing entities and non-breathing entities that serve us all. And I would set out on an inquiry organized similar to the methodology of materiality assessments, mainstream ESG assessments that I've done dozens of and kind of been through the process many times, but orient it slightly differently. And Mm -hmm. then I thought, well, why don't I just go do that? Like, why don't I just take some time and do materiality assessments based on reality. And I changed the spelling. So materiality spelled the conventional way, there's an I at the end, but I put reality into materiality. And that was really kind of eye-opening, and it sort of got some, some attention. And that's, that's really the basis of the material world substack. And I spell material with real at the end. And it began experimentally. In fact, I picked Google and I went ahead assessing, but two key differences compared to what I had been paid to do as a consultant for 20 years. The first was I was only using publicly available disclosures. I was just doing this kind of voluntarily on behalf of life. Mm -hmm. And so I wanted to make sure that I was really just looking at what was visible to the rest of the world. And if there's other stuff and the company wants to publish it or... Tell me about it or whatever. I'm, I've always said like I'd be more than happy to publish a retraction or a correction or whatever. But but I'm pretty good at navigating ESG disclosures because I just spent a bunch of years helping them exist. Yes. <laughs> so I used publicly available disclosures. That's a key difference. I did interview stakeholders and I invited stakeholders and I tried to find a range including those who could speak on behalf of the more than human world and that's a complex journey that I'm ever exploring. And I also made those interviews public. So if you Wait, want to what's know- what's the about... more than
1: human world?
0: So not just people. So we typically in interviews for stakeholder interviews, we interview people, right? Like you and I are doing right now or live or in some other format. But I wanted to make sure I included perspective that isn't just from people, which is- I love that. Challenging from a formatting perspective. So I needed to find ways to, or I have been exploring ways to gain perspective that would be informative that isn't centering humans because we keep over centering humans. That's a big problem with the SDGs. And then we center ourselves and we're like, wait, why, why are we suffering? And it's like, cause we're not at the center. So that was a key difference is just using really public information and making everything public. Whereas the, the majority of any, actually I've never seen a public materiality assessment by a company where they open up the black box. They just show you, if they show you anything, they show you the final list or matrix of issues. And it's like, gee, thanks for telling us that climate change is an issue. Like you paid a consultant to put that on a grid. right? Um, so that's one key difference. The other key difference is where mainstream materiality is really looking for, we're looking, mainstream materiality is looking for a list of issues. That yeah. is its output. There's details behind that, but that's basically the output.
1: Ostensibly to inform the strategy that they would take in this new project or the ongoing that's right. Work that's happening. Okay. Exactly.
0: Yeah. And if you were to say, what's the deliverable in materiality land for companies, it's a it's a list of issues and some context around them. And then it's an input or a part of a broader discussion about what they're going to do. Right. Reality-based materiality says, mm, no, we, we, we already know the issues. You already paid consultants to do that year over year. There's no real news coming out of that. What we need is an orientation of what is required for your business to serve life. Or in other words, Mm. to what degree are you serving life? Why? In what way? How? Based on what we can see, what stakeholders think and tell us. And what's the gap between your current business model, doing what it's doing, based on what we can see and what stakeholders are perceiving, and actually serving life? What would it look like? So Mm -hmm. it, it actually gets at the strategic thinking of like, well, what is needed? And I just proceeded to do some assessments. I made them open source. I built them in Google Slides. Anybody could come in. It was actually like at first I'm doing the Google one in total obscurity. Nobody's paying any attention to me whatsoever. It's very experimental, kind of lumpy. I'm kind of back of the envelope I get that one out there. These are all public. I can include links if you're. Yeah, let's want to put it in
1: the show notes for anyone who's curious to read. Yeah,
0: them. happy that these are all available. And then I went on to do a second one. I did TD Bank because uh, they're a major bank. I was, by the way, only selecting companies that I had never done any work with commercially so that there was no way I'd inadvertently been behind the scenes and exposing confidential. I was purely working on public disclosures. And I went ahead with TD Bank because I've been a customer since I was seven and they Mm -hmm. are one of the banks I haven't worked with. I have worked with some pretty big banks and that got interesting. I was kind of finding my legs and this was 2022 that I was really diving in here. And then I got to my third one, Danone, which is a global food company. Mm. And then I was really rolling with the methodology. I was like, okay, I'm seeing this. I'm feeling this. I was having really great stakeholder interviews and really finding ways. I mean, people would say like, Lorraine, your slides are kind of hectic, (laughs) Well, it's just me doing it. I was bootstrapping and I was really focusing on the quality of the information as best I could, trying to make it digestible, writing about it on medium. This was before I had my Substack. And when I put the Danone one out there, there was a time when these are, again, these are Google Slides. Anybody can pop in. So I'd be working away and there'd be like a dozen people in the deck, anonymous, you know, like anonymous, anonymous aardvark or like anonymous giraffe, you know, Google docs will do this. And I would just be like, oh, I wonder who's in there. I started to get a little bit more attention. And coming out of that, and this is where I thank my intuition for saying like, just keep going. You don't know what you're doing. You're earning zero revenue. You're going on a wing and a prayer here. I was winding down all my other corporate projects. I didn't Pull the plug and walk away. I pulled the plug and didn't take on anymore. So I still had a little smart, bit of-
1: Smart, so you can support yourself to make this transition.
0: Yeah. And also I didn't want to abandon my clients. Like I love them mm-hmm. and I had made commitments. It was like, I'll see those commitments through. But by early 2022, I was winding down the work, but a little bit of income came in because there's always a bit of a delay. So I think my last official invoice from any corporate work was the summer of 2022. And I've been making like crumbs on my medium uh, writing and, you know, a few bits and bobs. And I have a tip jar. And once in a while, people would put money in my tip jar. And I'd just be like, just keep going. Like, this is worthy. And then the Danone piece was out there. And I got a call from this research group that does research on behalf of journalists. And they Mm. provide information for journalists to help them do better kind of campaigns on key issues, especially climate. And they loved the Danone work. And they said, are you, can we commission you to do an assessment? And I was like, well, I don't, I'm not doing corporate work. Like I'm not doing paid gigs that like, I'm just doing this on
1: behalf. I'm only of doing work in service of life right now. Yeah.
0: And they were like, oh, we don't want you to change a thing. We want you to do like, you have free license. You have a hundred percent editorial, everything. It's just, we want to pick the company. And I was like, oh, say more. And they wanted to pick JBS they didn't know I speak Portuguese, that I've lived in Brazil. JBS is a Brazilian company. They had no idea. Had you
1: worked with JBS before that never, time? Never.
0: never. Okay. So they met my criteria of I have no commercial relationship with them. And I was about to do Glencore, the global mining company. And they came along and they said, if we gave you a really good tip, would you <laughs> would you do it? And so they did. They tipped me $10,000, which was a huge bump in income for bootstrapping me, pulling in my little... Crumbs with my writing and whatnot. And I went for it. And it was really cool. I got great feedback from that. And it helped me see useful insights and details that I could pull out. And that's what led me to the Substack because not everybody really wants to or even can dive into a big assessment like that. Like the JBS assessment, as anybody who digs around will see, it's 80 slides long. There's tons of data in there. I try to summarize it like there's some orientation, but there's a lot there. And so I heard people saying, oh, my God, these things are so cool, but they're big Google decks. I don't know what to do. Mm -hmm. And so I had this dream in, I think it was May 2023, not that long ago. I had a dream, literally. I was sleeping. And in my mind, my mind gave me a substack and called it the material world and was like, you need to be a greeter in the material world. People need to have an idea of where to go when they come to this world. And so can you please open up the door to the world? And so oh I God. created a material world sub stack and in it, every post I'm doing my darndest to grab just one insight out of the assessments or some other materiality type notion and pull that insight to the ground and be like, so here's the thing, you know, here's where the money went. Here's what they said about lobbying. The lobbying one I got really, really cool feedback for because I followed the money and people were like, oh my God, we didn't even know we
1: could see where lobbying dollars were going. The lobbying piece blew my mind thank you yeah. and I mean you're better than me to advise people where to begin I've read several of your pieces now I've listened to several recordings and what was the name of that episode
0: yeah that one oh this is funny can I tell this quick story of yes the title? please do you, like you can't make this stuff up like, I didn't make this up. Universe just helped me bump into it. So the the lobbying one, and there's a written version, and there's a podcast version, and soon there'll be a Portuguese version as well, because I'm I'm trying to make things as accessible to my Brazilian friends and colleagues as well. Anyway, the lobbying one is called Lies at the Nexus of Business and Policy. That's now, right. When you hear that, I'm guessing that you hear lies as in untruths at the nexus of business and policy. But I kid you not, Sydney, that phrase is the marketing language used on one of the policy advisor companies. I should circle back and see if they've changed it because I'm sure somebody pointed it out. I wasn't looking for a, a lobbying agency to have marketing context that says our work lies at the nexus of business and policy. But when I was oh following the money for this mining company, I was like, oh, oh, I see there. And if you, too, would like to see where is this money going? You can follow it. And I'm glad you say it blew your mind. I'm going to say it blew my neck because I spent hours, hours and hours and hours combing through the lobbying databases, trying to find like cohesive information about a couple of these companies. And I, I did create one red thread and then there came a point where I was like, I got to pause. This is crazy. But anyway, when I was following it, I was like, oh, they tell you the lobbying group that did the work that got mm-hmm. the money, and so you can click on them. And I, I'm like, oh, who are these guys? And bang up floats the like, you know, animated text on their website saying, "Our work lies at the nexus of business and policy." And I'm like, oh, it does, does it? Did, did anybody copy edited you? Because that's a scary statement. And so what's been happening is I'm learning to translate mm-hmm. because I. I love industry, like industry is amazing. It -hmm. has created so many ways of interacting with life and delivering elegance and beauty and fun and power and ecstasy and all kinds of things that are really like awesome, you know? Yeah. Um, And inadvertently for most, I'm willing to believe in some instances, this is fully intentional, but but I more believe it's not intentional. It's been kind of like the train left the station, and most people didn't understand the train. The way the incentives and instruction, uh, the way the incentives and structures are built, is net harmful. Right. And 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 I'm going to insert a little thorn here again. It isn't just like oh, because their climate goals aren't big enough. Their climate goals are the wrong goals. Their climate goals continue to perpetuate harm. Their human rights goals continue to perpetuate harm. The business model of every company that I looked at, and I am looking actively for one that isn't this. So if anybody knows of one, please come and heckle in the material world. If you want full (laughs) access and you don't feel up to paying a subscription, just send me your email address and I will put you in there. And if you know of places where people don't
1: do that, pay for a subscription.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. If you already know of places where this is happening, tell me. But I can tell you, having been within these business models, actively following the money, listening to the strategic dialogue, I have a weird habit of listening to investor earnings calls. And if mm-hmm. I miss them, you can always read the transcripts. I actually pay for a subscription to Seeking Alpha, which if people don't know, but it, it's actually really cool. And I'll give you a link to that. And full disclosure, mm-hmm. I'm an affiliate, although probably nobody is ever going to click on my link and sign up, but I use it and I've been using it for years. You can listen in on and read the full transcripts of every single publicly traded company that talks to their investors, which most of them do every quarter or every half year. You can go wow. to their websites, but it's clunky to find it on the website. So I just use their database. And so I've been listening to CEOs and CFOs saying, hey, investors, this is what we're working on. And I've been doing that with many companies for many years. And I can tell you, Sydney, zero of them are saying, we've been really thinking about how we live in relation with the wider world and what it would mean to be in right relation and truly be a force for healing. Now, I get that that language might not sit in CEO or CFO land, but there are ways you could translate translate it. Yeah, you can translate it. And I'm listening for the translation and I can hear them going, yeah, but we talk about sustainability. I track those words too. I track them carefully and I follow them. And here's one example that will tell you why we really have really amazing work to lean into and do. Danone, the food company I did the fourth assessment on, this is all detailed in the open source assessment. They had a CEO, Emmanuel Faber, or Faber, I don't know how he pronounces it, He was CEO for a number of years, and he was saying things like this, Sydney. He was actively saying to investors that one of the places Danone as a food company, yogurt, dairy, et cetera, but lots Mm -hmm. of other food products, lots of agriculture ingredients and water, how they could be a company that is part of restoring soils, being part of engaging in a truly effective way. There was still a little bit of kind of paternalistic colonialism, but you could hear him learning in real time. And, and inviting, like, we don't know how we're going to do that, but we're going to do it. Saying things like that to investors. I remember getting chills listening to, like, I'm getting them again now. One of those calls was, I think, in 2018. I mean, it might've been before. Anyways, it was cool. It was like, wow, this is the direction of travel. Hats off to this man. And then what happened to him, Sydney? He got walked out the door. I do not know personally why. It's none of my business and it doesn't matter. What matters is a new CEO came in and it was almost like they had to deal with the wreckage made by that forward thinking man who was trying to serve life. And now they've restructured and they went from investor earnings calls where the CEO would say really honestly, like legitimate goosebumps waving through my body kind of stuff Mm -hmm. to we're pleased to announce we have a new sustainability director who will be moving our climate agenda forward. And it's like, they just boxed it back in that's we'll pull the back. The back. Okay. Exactly. So I seek out ways to notice the gap and really tangibly touch it. Like let's not fool ourselves. People. If we say it's an ambitious sustainability agenda, but we can't actually say what is changing and, mm-hmm. and then know that that is a change we want, that it truly enables life, people, the beautiful biosphere that keeps us alive to be better off. If we can't actually say that, we either need to go find out, like ask a bunch more questions or notice that it's really just holding up the status quo and keeping us really distracted and maybe giving us relief, but mm-hmm. not giving us help.
1: So let me ask you one question, and I know we're reaching the end of our time, but I will say that for anyone listening who wants to hear more, you're actually going to be giving a talk in Toronto in early December. So at the very end, I'll ask you to share the details. We'll put a link in as well. This episode is going to have lots of exciting links. I wanted to ask you, can you recommend one practice from your experience, maybe Aside from the very long distance running where you're alchemizing and perceiving and sensing and integrating, what would be one practice that anybody listening who's nodding their head or like sort of shocked and awakened by some of what you're sharing could do either with themselves or in the corporate or even just interrelational context. Mm. And it may not have a simple answer. This was actually sent from a listener who said to me, like, please just start asking people, what are they practicing? Mm. And I love that question. Allison is the person who sent that question in. Cool.
0: I love that question.
1: Hi, friends. I've added a new feature for those who subscribe to the Intuitively Aligned podcast on Substack. We're going to be creating short form audios for paid subscribers only, where our guests will go into a little bit deeper detail around how they practice whatever it is that they are sharing on the freely available intuitively aligned podcast. So, thank you, Allison, for your question. And for those who want to hear more about Lorraine's embodied practice of connecting to the more than human reality, Definitely consider checking it out because this description is amazing on top of what is already an absolutely incredible episode. Lorraine, we're nearing the end of our time. Do you want to say a little bit about your event in Toronto for anyone who's listening in real time, who wants to come and hear you share more? As I said at the very beginning, this is the tip of the iceberg of your body of work, which is not just awe-inspiring for me, I think you are speaking about the reality that we should all be working to transform together. So I think your work is hugely important. I am planning to be at the event. Do you want to say a couple of words about it?
0: Sure, thank you for the opportunity to share. So it feels like a little bit of a homecoming in that I will be in Toronto giving my first live talk since 2019 and it will be a lecture at the Textile Museum which also feels like a homecoming as a place I've volunteered and done a lot of work as a textile artisan we didn't even touch on that but I will be bringing my best lecture about what I've been seeing and learning and finding about the opportunity for business to be in service of life so it's a talk I've named on the path to industrial healing this notion mm. of healing industry across all sectors and regions And I will touch on what I've been learning in terms of my years in ESG and sustainability, but really grounding it in this reality, sharing some key insights that have come from the assessments, come from these conversations with different stakeholders, human and non, and really inviting the possibility of what it looks like to lean towards this for each of us, because we all have different roles. There's no one job or practice or path. And so really inviting folks to notice the gap that we've been kind of accepting and just seeking relief from and Mm -hmm. saying, hey, you know what, we're going to, we're going to stop accepting. We're going to get help. We're going to do this differently. And we can, and we are, and and many of us are. Lots of time for Q&A as well. So it'll be an open Q&A. It's a small enough theater that I think we'll be able to have a pretty cool conversation. Some interesting leaders are showing up. So Bob Willard, who anyone in sustainability will know is a kind of the Canadian pioneer and grandfather of the, the movement here in Canada, uh, many times author. He's going to be introducing me and, and sort of handing me over to the crowd.
1: Uh, so December, exciting.
0: Thank you. Yeah, it's Tuesday, December 5th at 7 p.m. at the Textile Museum. And there's different ticket options depending on where you're at and if you want to bring a friend, etc. So I'll make sure that it's super clear in the link that I will share. Thank you for the opportunity. And I am so excited that I'll get to see you there.
1: Knock on wood, I'm like, I really hope we get bedtime down.
0: (laughs) Yeah, my motto these days is plan subject to change.
1: (laughs) Plan subject to change. I have full intentions to be there. Thank you so much for coming on today and sharing so much of yourself and so much of what you've done and what you're doing. And I can't wait to hear the feedback from listeners. I think what you're talking about is really, truly the direction we need to be going and when I think about intuitive alignment, grounding all of the work we're doing in all of the dimensions of our being and our existence on this planet is so critical and that we're operating in this earthly reality and creating change that is in service of life. So you speak in my love language and I can't wait for more conversations. It's been a real pleasure.
0: I was so excited to hear from you and listen to your work and I have found your voice and guests and knowledge. So validating. Thank you very much for all you're doing and for bringing me here today. It's appreciated.
1: It's my pleasure. It's my pleasure to serve and it's my joy. And that's the other thing I really want people to remember is we're not just here to be empowered and to create transformational change. We're really here to have joy as well while we do it. So love it. To our audience, I want to say thank you so much for listening to today's episode. I hope you enjoyed. If you like what you're listening to, please subscribe, share, or click the notification button on your podcast platform. For those listening on Apple Podcasts, I would be so grateful for a five-star rating and a written review. This will also make it easier for other listeners to find the show. I also want to give a shout-out to our podcast producer, Wilson Lynn. And I want to thank you again for joining me on this journey. I can't wait for you to hear the next episode.